So recently, one of our staff members poked their head into my office <clears throat> and said, I've, I've got an idea. Uh, then they shared the idea, and it, it, was a, it was a good idea. And so in my head, I thought, that's a great idea. It makes a lot of sense. I think it would be really helpful and meaningful for our congregation. We should definitely do that. But what I said out loud was, okay. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> Thankfully, this person was not deterred by my lack of communication and said, so what does okay mean? <laughs> like, do you like it? Do you not like it? Um, Right. So my wife actually reminds me about this all the time, that a conversation is not just a transfer of information. <laughs> okay was basically my robotic response saying, thank you, your information has been received. But that's not exactly how relationships work, is it? That's not exactly how relationships work, is it? No. <laughs> I mean, we're Presbyterians, and we live a lot of the time in our minds, so maybe we're all like, it's not a transfer of information? Conversations are interactions, right? They're giving and receiving and participating in an experience and in a moment together. But, and this is especially true sort of in our tradition, Many times our experience of religion, the expectation is that faith is a transfer of information from God to us. So we open up the Bible and we read and we say things like, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In other words, okay. <laughs> but what if interacting with the Bible isn't just a transfer of information. What if we're invited to interact with it, to pay attention to our own response to what is being read, to, to respond with questions and ideas and our own stories, the stories or, or images or, or thoughts that come into our own minds. We read the Bible as a, as a way of participating in a shared experience with God and with others. And not only just us, but God with others other people all over the world who are reading the Bible and with people throughout history who have read the Bible and had experiences and thoughts and stories to tell. The way that God's Spirit moves in and through the Bible is by inviting anyone and everyone to join the conversation, to bring our own unique perspectives and presence into the conversation. Make sense? All right, let's, let's try it. <laughs> John chapter 6. So after this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. And Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. Okay, so let's pause just for a moment. It's around the time of Passover, which is the annual ritual of remembering the shared story of God liberating the people from slavery. 
So instead of just giving his followers a long speech about God's liberation movement and the story of the Exodus, Jesus acts it out with them and for them. We just crossed a sea following Jesus just like our ancestors followed Miriam and Moses through the Red Sea. And now we've come to a mountain just like our ancestors came to the mountain of God in the wilderness, the mountain where the people received the Torah or God's commandments, which would become the foundation for the Bible. There on that mountain, they received their sacred text. So feeling this story in their bodies on this journey with Jesus, they might have intuitively been wondering as they came up to Jesus, what might Jesus give us on this mountain? What might we receive on this mountain? And then as participants ourselves, in the reading and hearing of this story 2,000 years later, we might wonder, what do I want Jesus to offer me? Now, if, if that question comes, pay attention to the first thing that comes to your mind, like the very first thing that comes to your mind. It has to be the first thing because, at least the first thing that pops into your mind, because that's the thing that is there before our religious reflexes remind us that there is one right answer and a lot of wrong answers, right? Like we have ideas that come into our mind and then we're like, that's not a church answer. So I'm going to think of something different. Also pay attention to what you feel in your body or what, what your body wants in this particular moment. If I was asked this question when I was a kid sitting in church, and if I were honest, I would have said, I want to get up and I want to move around. In fact, I probably just want to go home because I'm hungry and, and I want lunch. I want to get up and move around because being forced to sit still here for this long is making me want to crawl out of my skin. That's what my body wants. I want to move and I want something to eat. But then along the way, I learned that that wasn't the right answer, right? So... So I had to give other answers like, I want Jesus to teach me how to love God, or I want Jesus to teach me how to love my neighbor. Did I get it right? Is that the right answer? Fine. I mean, of course, like those are good answers, and we talk about that all the time. But if religion is used to suppress any awareness that we might have of what is happening inside of us, or in our own lives, then it will be increasingly hard, increasingly harder to be aware of what God is doing in us and through us and all around us. If religion is used to suppress any awareness of what, what we really need, then it becomes increasingly difficult to care for the very real needs of other people, right? Like, like if I'm not supposed to pay attention to my needs, then why are you paying attention to your own needs? All you need is God. Like, all you need to do is learn how to love your neighbor. And so if we're increasingly not aware <clears throat> of our own hunger, then why would we care about anybody else who's hungry? If I'm not allowed to have any other emotion as an American male other than anger, specifically anger at sports, <laughs> then why would I care about the feelings of anyone else, right? Right? who isn't having an emotion that's different than anger at their sports. 
or at a referee, or at whatever, whatever else is happening on the playing field. So, does that make sense? If there is no wrong answer, only honest answers, what would you want Jesus to offer you? Does anyone have a word or a few words of the first thing that came to your mind? Do you dare say out loud? Answers. You want answers. Redemption. Peace. Better health. Salvation. Did anybody think the winning numbers to the Powerball lottery? <laughs> right? Of course, right? Like, like a lot. So, in all of these answers, like everywhere from the superficial to the really deep, like these are the things that are in our hearts and in our minds, and they all have something to say. Like if, if, if it's the winning numbers to the Powerball lottery, like that's great to know. Why do we want that? What's missing in our lives that that's going to solve for us? Or what problems might that cause for our lives that, that we don't currently have? Like the answers that come to our minds at the very beginning are so important for us to be aware of because God has something to teach us through them. So let's find out what Jesus actually gave the people on that mountain. Continuing in, in John 6, verse 5. So when Jesus looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread for these people to eat. He said this to test, the, test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii, or a whole lot of money, would not buy enough bread for each of them to get just a little bit. So one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But... What are they among so many people? And Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. And then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted, as much as they wanted. And when they were satisfied, when their bodies were satisfied. He told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled 12 baskets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Information received. Any answers there? No? Just more questions? So let's not miss the importance of Jesus feeding people. When I, when I was doing youth ministry just out of college, I used to take kids um, to volunteer at different um, homeless shelters uh, to prepare meals and, 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 and participate in some other things. And, and so anyone who wanted a meal had to first attend a church service, which, which we were usually involved in. And so you had to listen to the words before you could eat. I mean, 
does Jesus not realize that some people might eat the bread and the fish and then leave before he's able to say anything? Like, how come Jesus hasn't figured this out? We obviously figured it out. Like, you shouldn't give them food before you give them the words. But Jesus just gives them the food before he says anything. Maybe it just matters that Jesus feeds people who are hungry. Maybe at a very, very basic level, it just matters that Jesus feeds people who are hungry. Maybe there's something deeply spiritual about people who are hungry being satisfied in their bodies. Jesus feeds the people five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, five loaves of bread is just like sort of the spiritual food given by God on the mountain, the the Torah, the, the first five books of the Bible. The Bible often describes itself, the Bible often describes the teachings or the words that come from God as as spiritual food. It's bread, it's something sweet, it's a lavish meal that's prepared by Lady Wisdom, Sophia, which again is an invitation to bring ourselves fully into our experience with the Bible, with God, and with one another. Eating is a full-body experience. We come to the table, whether we realize it or not, with all of our senses alive. I mean, we've been eating for a really long time, and so we probably aren't paying attention to this, but eating is a highly complex experience because we actually need all of our senses to figure out if the food is edible, to figure out if we'll we'll like the taste, to figure out perhaps even if this food is dangerous and might kill us. Like, we need to be engaged when we come to the table. And if we're eating together, we're also reading and interpreting and and responding to the people who are all around us, to their words, to their body language, and to their movement. Like, we need to be fully aware at the table. I mean, this is why kids play with their food, right? It's actually necessary and good for kids to play with their food because they're exploring a complex world of new things, of foods and objects, along with the words and the expressions and the movements of the adults around them who are giving mixed signals. Don't drop your spoon on the floor, but when you do, we laugh, right? Like it's, it's important to play in order to discover what's happening in this world that is so complex. So th- for thousands of years, the Jewish community have had no problem playing with the Bible. Christians have sort of lost our understanding of what it means to play with the Bible, but, but the Jewish community has done it for thousands of years. The rabbis would read a story, and then they would change the story, and then they would add to the story. They would offer different interpretations and les- lessons and their own stories and parables, and then others would share their insights, which would many times be different or even contrary. It was all a part of this meaningful conversation Playing with their food was part of this spiritual feast that was offered to them in the Bible. The way that God would speak to them was primarily through community. So Jesus is offering us this spiritual food that is multiplying each with each person who gathers on the grass to eat. 
Jesus is offering us nourishment that is multiplying with each reading of the gospel because it's another opportunity to, to hear something new. It's an opportunity to hear something different. It's not only the, that the meal is multiplied for us. It's that the meal is multiplied because of us. The meal is multiplied with what each of us hear and see and experience in our time together. It's multiplied with who we are and what we bring to the table. The more people, the more the meal is multiplied. The meal is multiplied not because, just because God is present. The meal is multiplied because you are here and you are here and you are here, and we are here. So next week we'll talk about the fish. <laughs> but today as we come to the communion table, I invite you to pay attention. Specifically, I invite you to pay attention to what's happening within you. What stories, what experiences come to your mind as we walk forward, as we, as we take the bread, as we drink the juice. But I also invite you to, at some point in this time, to pick up your head and to look around at everyone else who is here today. Each person here brings something to this meal that ultimately is nourishing for all of us. This meal is so much more nourishing and significant because we are eating it together. So, as we pay attention to our own experience and as we pay attention to one another, we are being fed and we are learning to notice that God is with us too. Jesus, we pray that you would allow us to be fully human as we engage with your word, as we engage with your presence, as we engage with one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.